Everything's going to be all right. Uh, good day wherever you're listening from, and welcome to Indoor Air Quality Radio, IAQ Radio. It's Friday, November 18th, 2016. This week, we're going to flash back into the archives to episode number 377 we did with uh, doc- Dr. Glenn Morrison. This was uh, a little over a year ago now we did this show. Actually, it would be um, July 24th, 2015. Dr. Morrison was... Just back from uh, a big indoor air quality show, one of the international shows, and uh, we talked to him about some emerging issues. Before we get started, though, let's thank our marquee sponsors. John Don Products, or restoration and abatement contractor shop. Visit them at johndon.com. Clean Facts, the number one information source for cleaning and restoration professionals. Check them out at cleanfacts.com iaq.net and healthy indoors magazine a free online digital magazine for industry professionals and consumers subscriptions available at iaq.net please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of iaq radio when you acquire about their products or services you can stream the show from our website or download previous shows from the website and also you can download the show from itunes in their podcast area, just type in IAQ Radio. Last but not least, please visit the IAQ Training Institute website for the most current dates for the training you trust at iaqtraining.com. Not sure where the Z-Man is today, but uh, he should be here any moment. When he does, we'll go to the IAQ Radio trivia questions. So I think what we're going to do is jump right into our introduction. Uh, Dr. Glenn Morrison is a professor of civil, architectural, and environmental engineering at Missouri University of Science and Technology. He graduated with his PhD from the University of California in Berkeley, after working for six years as a chemical engineer in research and development of catalysts. He has over 25 years of chemical and environmental engineering experience, most of that focusing on chemistry and transport phenomena in indoor environments. He's also an NSF Career Award winner and the current president of the International Society of Indoor Air Quality and Climate. His research has included ozone, surface chemistry, building forensics, sensor development, pollutant movement in buildings, aerosol transport of semi-volatile organic compounds, exposure implications of smog reactions with human surfaces and hair, methamphetamine contamination of residences, design of indoor surfaces for improved air quality, and other related projects. He's brought in over $2.8 million in research funding to the uh, Missouri uh, group there at uh, Missouri. It's the Missouri... University of Science and Technology. We've got some intro music for Dr. Morrison. All right, Dr. Morrison, do we have you on the line? Thanks, Joe. Uh, you're welcome. I don't know if you realize that's the fighting, uh, the fight song for the uh, Missouri University of Science and Technology. I believe that's uh, Cliff comes up with those. <laughs> I don't know. It if sounded you... familiar, but I wasn't quite sure. <laughs> I can understand. I, I said to my uh, my engineer here, I said, you know, I wonder if he's ever heard that. It's not like it's the University of Texas fight song or something like that. Right. You know? But right. anyway. I, Tell us a little bit about the Civil Architectural and Environmental Engineering Program at the Missouri University of Science and Technology. Sure. Um, So the program is about, we have about 400 students in the program for the three um, degree programs, but, um, you know, they're split, you know, somewhat, mostly civil, then architectural, then environmental. Um, Historically, the department and the university as a whole has been um, focused on undergraduate education, and so we have a really great reputation for that, and uh, regionally, employers come from all over for our our engineers from the department. And generally, we're ranked in the top five 
uh, or so um, uh, return on investment institutions um, because we produce so many engineers. Uh, the civil architectural programs generally focus on structural engineering and geotechnical engineering. They're, they have the other elements like they would normally do, but um, unlike many architectural programs, the focus is on the structure and um, with uh, things like HVAC and mechanical systems being a part of it, but not the main focus. Environmental engineering is more water-focused at the university. I'm the uh, token air guy. I uh, do all the air pollution-related coursework for the program. So that kind of gives you a little bit of an idea. So you, you teach courses and do research. You're, you're obviously a pretty busy guy then. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. I teach uh, three to four courses a year. That's typical for a professor at our university do, doing research. Um, and I generally teach courses in air pollution, air pollution control, indoor air pollution. Uh, you can see the trend and also some graduate classes that are more uh, focused on chemistry and um, things like uh, reactor theory and that kind of thing. How much, how, you, you've got architectural students, how involved do they get? Do they have to take the indoor environmental quality course that you do? Um, they don't. It's an elective. I usually have a few that take it, the ones that are interested in that side. Because we tend to be more uh, structural focused as a, as a department, um, the, students that are, uh, the students tend to go more in that direction. Um, but there's always a, a few of the architectural students that are jazzed about indoor environments as well. And what, what city is the university located in? It's in Rolla. Some of your listeners may be familiar with our, our previous names. We were originally called the Missouri School of Mines, and we started back in the 1870s. Um, and then um, at some point, I don't recall when, in, I think it was about 1970, it changed to the Missouri, uh, University of Missouri-Rolla. So we're actually part of the University of Missouri system. And that is actually the name that many people remember as the University of Missouri-Rolla. Uh, a while ago, maybe about eight or nine years ago, we changed the name again to the current name, Missouri University of Science and Technology, to reflect kind of our, our specialty of you know, basically being kind of a technology university. I see. Okay, now we've got the Z-Man. Let's, let's unmute the Z-Man. He ran a couple minutes behind. Hello, Cliff. We've got you. Hey, Glenn. Thanks for joining us. Hey, Cliff. Good, good to have you. Good Cliff, do you want to go to uh, – do you want to do a question and do the – Trivia question, maybe at halftime? We could. All right, let's do that. Do you have a question, or do you want me to keep rolling? No, you can keep going, Joe. All right. You're just back now from Healthy Buildings. I guess it's Healthy Buildings America 2015, and and you're the current president of the International Society for Indoor Air Quality and Climate. Before the show, we were talking a little bit about how you've changed things. You're now having... um, these healthy buildings conferences, there's two of them a year, and they're every other year, and now I guess indoor air is going to be every other year, which used to be every three years, and, and, and they're a little smaller, so they're a little more intimate. Tell us a little bit about your takeaways from that event. What was, you know, for our listeners, what were the big issues that people were talking about? Where's the focus at these days, etc.? Sure, sure. So I'd say big picture um, in terms of, like, the, the big topics, uh, are um, the microbiology, microbiome of indoor environments. Um, That's been growing for the past few years, and there's quite a few sessions um, uh, sponsored and otherwise on that area, really, you know, looking at, you know, there's so much going on there that we we until recently didn't even know was going on in terms of the, uh, you know, it's it's not my area, so I couldn't spend much time on that. But is that um, climate change? And uh, its relationship to indoor air quality is a big thing um, that has been sort of growing. And and there were several uh, sessions just on that. Um, There were actually quite a few sessions on school issues associated with schools. So big picture, those are the sessions, I thought, are the sort of major topics that sort of jumped out at me. Um, Also, uh, semi-volatile organic compounds, which I think we can talk about more later. but I did want to say that I, I think that the uh, – I want to say one thing about the fact that we've sort of changed the, that um, uh, mechanism, that we're doing um, the healthy buildings um, every other year and the indoor air every other year, and that they're the at least the healthy buildings are going to be a little bit smaller, more intimate. And I really like that. I, I, there's a 
first time we've done that in the U.S. Um, and Boulder, and we had 200 participants, and it was uh, it was a, a, li- a little bit more like a, kind, of, kind of going and, and uh, hanging out with family, you know. Hmm. So I really like that. Now, with these, you mentioned the microbiome, climate change, mm-hmm. schools, SVOCs. Do you get the impression these are more, um, I don't know, popular or more commonly discussed today because that's where the funding is available or is that just up and coming you know uh, issues with respect to indoor environmental quality or is it some combination of the two i'd say it's definitely a combination um some of these things are uh, the, for example the microbiome has been um, pushed heavily or i should say there's a program coming out of the uh, alfred p sloan foundation that has um, provided funding for quite a few researchers across the country on that subject, and that's one reason why it's a big thing. It's not. It's there are many, many areas in research in indoor indoor environments that um, all of us would love to see research on. Um, and there's sort of empty, or I should say, open questions. There's a lot of open questions, and frankly, we don't get to them unless the funding shows up. So, dedicated funding on the microbiome from the Sloan Foundation, and the um, currently we have a there's a uh, the EPA has funded um, I think it's nine large projects on the relationship between indoor environments and climate change. And that funding came in this year. So that's why that one's taking off. Schools has always been kind of a big issue. And, and I think that it's, for, I don't know why exactly, but for some reason at this particular conference, we had a lot of sessions on that. Hmm. So I think it's mixed. Yeah. But funding is a big part of it. Now, you mentioned open questions, big open questions. What's the biggest open question in your mind? If there was more money, you know, if you could snap your finger, get more money, which which open question with respect to the indoor environment do you think needs the most attention? Oh, it, I, for, uh, I think we'd, there different people would have different answers, certainly, but mine would be to relate the um, the uh, what we know about the composition of indoor environments, what's really happening there, and health. The really our, our understanding of really the health effects associated with, with the thousands of chemicals and the you know uncountable microorganisms and the aerosols and all these things that are indoors relative to out you know we just don't have um, really good epidemiology we don't really have good tech toxicology there's it's it's there in in piecemeal fashion but not enough to really help I think focus our energy on those things that really matter. I think we spend a lot of time uh, studying things, studying classes of chemicals or classes of microorganisms, because we're pretty sure that there's some really bad actors in there, but we don't know exactly which ones they are. So I think that's the biggest open question, but I also think that's going to be the hardest one to learn anything about, and certainly the one that's going to take the most funding in the future. And the hardest to learn about because there's just so many variables involved sure i mean think of the confounding factors uh every indoor environment is so different from another i mean when it came to like cigarette smoke that was something where you could kind of tease these things apart but it still took many many years to really understand those uh health effects of secondhand smoke and to be able to do that with the chemicals that come from you know various uh, building materials or consumer products or the chemistry that's taking place when smog comes in, in, comes in from outdoors, yeah, that's a a much harder uh, <laughs> question to answer, I think. Yeah. And but that I think is our biggest um, sort of open question: What are those health effects? Hmm. All right, let's talk a little more about at, at healthy buildings. Which specific presentations you got to see? What caught your attention? Well, some of this is going to be similar to what I just said, but. Um, there was a really nice session on carbon dioxide. You know, we think of carbon dioxide as this, it's like, okay, old hat, right? We've been measuring carbon dioxide for years as a kind of evidence that we've got sufficient ventilation, things like that. But recently there's been some good studies showing that there's cognitive impairment associated with even relatively low concentrations of CO2. So I think this is going to be, start becoming more interesting um, and that instead of just using CO2 as an indicator of ventilation, we're going to be thinking of CO2 itself as a pollutant. Um, there were some real nice presentations on low-cost sensing technology that I think are we're going to see a lot more of, and we'll probably, uh, I think we should be embracing those, but embracing them very carefully. 
Um, there were some great presentations on SBOCs. Um, we can talk a little bit more about those um, later, but uh, Ying Zhu at um, uh, University of Texas has been doing some really nice work on uh, how these chemicals migrate through residences and end up getting on every surface, and um, then ultimately that's uh, sort of exposure pathways for us. Um, there was a really great one that I didn't go to, a session that was sponsored by the Sloan Foundation on um, built environment study methods. And this has to do with, again, this microbiology, microbiome in indoor environments. And what I heard from others was it was a great session because they did all these uh, sort of hands-on um, use of uh, various tools for uh, measuring moisture. And um, uh, there's another session uh, on, on moisture methods as well. And I, I got a lot of good feedback from others. Unfortunately, I had to be in other sessions for those. And then the, I should say that the, there were several sessions on climate change I thought were uh, quite interesting. But er, early in the game, what is the, that big picture question of um, how does uh, what's the influence of the outdoor environment, society, health, economy, all these things influencing the indoor environment in complex ways. I think we're going to see some real interesting uh, research coming out of that in the next few years. I've got one follow-up on that. You said um, with yeah. respect to CO2 that there's some research showing there's cognitive impairment at relatively low concentrations. What's what's relatively low? Um, I believe the number was below 2,500. 2,500. PPM. Okay. Yeah. And so this is uh, Bill Fisk at Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory presented. Uh, he's... Uh, uh, he and his team have uh, reported on this recently. I think there's a follow-up study by another group to, to validate that, those results. And they were using, um, basically they were using uh, pure CO2 to control the CO2 in, these, um, uh, in this study. Um, I won't go into the details because I would, I would probably uh, mess it up if I tried to <laughs> explain how they did those experiments. But the point was that they did all of these um, measurements of productivity and cognitive um, uh, like uh, how well are people doing certain tasks, that kind of thing. I've got a, a text. I think you sort of just answered it, but I have a text from a listener. Are the cognitive impairments permanent or are these temporary? Uh, I believe they're considered temporary. Okay. Okay, very good. Uh, Cliff, anything you want to add before I move on to the SVOC subject? Uh, no, go ahead, Joe. All right. We're, we're talking... Uh, you do a lot on semi-volatile organic compounds, and I want to kind of set the table for listeners. First, what what is a, a semi-volatile organic compound? Let me let me say that as I understand it, a volatile organic compound is something that um, you would have you see like an off-gassing at room temperature. What's a, a semi-volatile? And did I screw up the volatile? <laughs> no, that's about right. I like to think of it in terms of like something we all know, you know, like gasoline. So if you if you spill a little gasoline on the ground, you smell it. What you're smelling, of course, are these real volatile species like benzene and octane, and um, those things are coming off very rapidly. They're evaporating rapidly. Those are volatile species, and that's the kind of thing that we see, as you say, in off-gassing from um, building materials. But it turns out that off-gassing happens for a wide range of compounds, and many we don't really notice. Certainly, we certainly don't smell them. And if you look at gasoline again, gasoline is a mixture of sort of small molecules, medium-sized molecules, and big molecules. And the big molecules don't um, evaporate as readily, and that's where we start getting into the semi-volatile range. It's defined more sort of technically by boiling point, that if you um, think of water as a boiling point of about 100 degrees Celsius. But semi-volatiles are considered semi-volatile if they have a boiling point between about 250 degrees Celsius and 400 degrees Celsius. So it's pretty high. They don't boil at room temperature at all or even close to room temperature. So you think of them as being, they're, they're low volatility, they don't evaporate very quickly, and, they're, and because of that, they tend to be more persistent in indoor environments. They don't, you know, you can think of, they don't have sort of off gas and then they're gone after a few months. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Now, give listeners, if you would, a few examples of what is considered a, an SVOC, a semi-volatile sure. organic compound. Sure. So um, uh, almost anything, um, any organic compound that's sort of in that range, um, but there's a lot of 
compound classes that tend to be in the semi-volatile range. Um, think of um, pesticides, plasticizers, um, uh, flame retardants. Um, and so there's a lot of things in those classes that are, um, they're intended to be persistent. They're intended not to evaporate out of the, ma the material that they were put into. Uh, they're intended to stick around. And so, for example, um, uh, uh, PCBs is, a comp is an example. So we've kind of, we've gotten rid of PCBs. PCBs are polychlorinated biphenyls. They were used as things like dielectric fluids and transformers and uh, things like that. But they were designed to be really, really stable compounds and last for a long time. And so we use them in sealants and caulks um, to seal around windows and doors uh, years ago. And because of that, they're still there. And they slowly migrate out of those materials and move into other areas of the environment that then we can uh, take in if there's adverse health effects. You know. So those are some of them. Another, other ones that are, they're common, you're familiar with are things like um, nicotine is a semi-volatile organic compound. So is methamphetamine. It's actually, methamphetamine is kind of on the edge. It's more, almost more volatile than semi-volatile. Um, pentachlorophenol, which was used as a wood preservative, is a uh, uh, SVOC. Um, so th there's, anyway, there's a bunch of them. <laughs> yeah, sounds like it. And, and it sounds like at least some of them are, are they used in some part to to kind of keep things pliable, like, like with caulk and things of that nature? Is that part of the yeah. reason? Absolutely. Yeah, they're, they're, so, the, so in caulk, they're, they were used um, basically to keep them pliable for a long period of time so that their sealant properties would be maintained. Um, phthalates are used in vinyl flooring to keep it from cracking. So you walk on, if, if you just had PVC flooring and that was it, it would be brittle. But by adding phthalates, which are not bonded to the PVC, they tend to like, they sit, they're molecules that sit between the, um, the, uh, the polymer um, uh, bonds in the PVC and they help just make it more flexible. Um, so if you've ever like just, you know, squished, uh, PV, uh, vinyl flooring is kind of squishy. Um, it's also, uh, but if you look at really old vinyl flooring, it tends to crack. And that's because over time, those, uh, phthalate compounds, the plasticizers have slowly migrate, migrated out of the material. And, and when these migrate out of the material, what happens to them? I, I, mean, I'm, I, I guess in general, because I would imagine different things happen with different classes. But Yeah. Yeah, that's, I mean, if we look at SVOCs as a broad class, they're not very volatile. So we say, well, why do we care about them if they're not volatile? They're not in the indoor air. But the thing is, they're really interesting to me because they do these really complex things at the, sort of in this, what we call physical chemistry world. They will... You know, move from the, let's say, vinyl flooring to dust, and then the dust can be inhaled. So that's a, a one of the ways that we take in a lot of these um, semi-volatile compounds, whether it's from, um, from flooring or whether it's uh, flame retardants that come from a computer, like the plastic case around electronics. You know, those, they, they migrate out of those into dust, and then we breathe them in. And so that's where it goes. And some of it just goes out, you know, just like, you know, gets ventilated out slowly, but it's very, very slowly. The, you know, things like the phthalates and vinyl flooring, it, it takes decades upon decades to uh, essentially deplete those sources. And can this dust, it's primarily inhaled. Is there also the potential for other routes of exposure? Oh, sure. Oh, and absolutely. There's all kinds of ways to take in these SVOCs. Um, uh, that are indoors. So these SVOCs, the, the, you know, the indoor environment is one place. You can get it from food as well and from personal care products. There's all these possible sources of, of SVOCs getting into your body. But the ones that are like sourced indoors, like from building materials or from cleaning products or from paints, that kind of thing, generally the way that you're going to take them in is by either inhaling dust or um, touching surfaces that have these materials on them and then um, having that either go through your skin or um, a lot of it is hand to mouth. Basically you touch the children touch surfaces all the time, putting dust, uh, basically ingesting dust by transferring it from a surface into their, into their mouth. And then the other uh, way that that's, this is a really interesting thing that's been um, uh, recognized more recently is that we can take in a lot of these chemicals through our skin. Our skin does 
um, quote, breathe. It doesn't breathe air, but it absorbs chemicals through it and actually can desorb chemicals out, you know, can go both directions. And so uh, you can think of your body as kind of like a, a sponge for these semi-volatile organic compounds because they really like uh, the oils in your skin. They really kind of like to accumulate in them and, and the fats in your body. So you're a really good sponge for these chemicals. And do we have any idea which of these routes of exposure cause the most, um, well, the most accumulation, I guess, of, of these SVOCs within people? Or is that something we just are clueless about and that's what you're trying to figure out? Well, uh, the last statement's true. We're, we, that's one of the, the, I'm trying to figure that out. I think that um, what we're seeing is that it really, really depends on the chemical. So for something like, um, there are certain like large molecular weight phthalates um, that are used in vinyl flooring. They're like heavy, big compounds. Um, it turns out that the, the dust route is probably the major route um, of uh, exposure, that, the way that you get it into your body. Um, but uh, for some um, molecules, it's very different. So I did a study recently where we looked at um, how methamphetamine um, how it uh, moves from um, uh, essentially a surface to uh, fabric materials. And so it turns out that for children, um, they're in this mode where they're always putting things in their mouth. The mm-hmm. most important route of exposure is actually that transfer to, through the air to clothing, and then by mouthing the material, by putting it in their mouth, they, they, they absorb, they essentially dissolve the methamphetamine. Now, this was not a human study. This is just based on um, laboratory studies and basically predictions. So it's likely that we've never proven it in humans. And then there's these other molecules that are probably, um, um, there's certain uh, phthalates and uh, some other compounds that are probably going through our skin. That may be the majority um, pathway um, where it's just, we're essentially just drawing it out of the air. It's a complex set of exposure pathways and we kind of have to understand the, um, the chemistry the, and the, um, the way these uh, chemicals um, migrate from place to place indoors and then through our, through our skin or other, these, all these other pathways. You have to understand all of them in order to figure out which one is most important or which collection of pathways are most important. And then, correct me if I'm wrong, are, is this also like the category of chemical exposure where we're not just worried about the immediate toxicology, the immediate toxic effects that could occur, but also that this this somehow can be passed down from generation to generation and, and it may actually be affecting that as well and that it may not do anything to me or to you or to your wife or mine, but their grandchildren may have a problem. Is that something that I heard it's, somewhere? It's possible. And I'll have to say that, you know, I'm not a toxicologist. And so I won't uh, pretend to know uh, which chemicals may have those uh, potential attributes. Um, the, you know, what you're talking about, I think, is what's called epigenetics, where a chemical um, or something um, will uh, modify the way that gene is expressed. And this, um, because by doing that, you uh, you can pass it along to your children the way that gene is expressed. Um, uh, the, the, for these, uh, I, I'll say I, I, I'm not really sure if, um, which of these species can do that. It's probably likely that some of them do. Mm-hmm. But beyond that, I would say more generally, these compounds, um, most of these don't have immediate, direct, um, what we call acute health effects because they are at relatively low concentration in indoor environments. But what, they, what we're worried about are more of the chronic health effects during your lifetime, like cancer um, and causing endocrine disruption. And this may also be related to your question um, that, for example, if you have these compounds in your body, it can change the sex hormone production. Um, certain kinds of chemicals, certain flame retardants and stuff and such can do this. And they, so you have these sex hormones like testosterone, for example. When you have that happening, that can change... Um, things like your ability to reproduce or um, what happens when you reproduce and um, perhaps even affect uh, the uh, development of, of uh, a baby in utero. So um, uh, that's the kind of thing that it's more of these long-term uh, uh, chronic health effects as opposed to sort of immediate, I'm feeling bad today kind of health effects. 
I want to ask one more, I think, fairly quick question, and then we're going to have to break for our halftime. We'll do our sure uh, our, our, our IAQ Radio trivia question, and I see we still have some people on that may know that one, so or may try and get it. With respect to these SVOCs, the, these products that, that you're trying to understand, you know, how difficult is it, how much research has been done on these chemicals in general? I mean, not just, you know, the exposure routes, et cetera, but just in general, what kind of, how much toxicology has been done? Are we looking at chemicals that very little has been done on or a great deal has been done on or a, a wide mix? It's a mix. For example, there's been a lot of research on um, certain kinds of flame retardants and uh, a great deal of research on, on these phthalates that are used to plasticize vinyl flooring. Mm-hmm. It, the problem is it's difficult research. You know, it's, you're looking at, you're, you're getting all this information about all these you know, effects in mice, for example, but then it's difficult to translate that to, to the health effects in humans. So for a lot of these, these chemicals that I've been mentioning, the, they, there is a lot of um, res- data out there, but primarily in the, um, uh, the, the animal studies you know, or uh, what we call in vitro studies where they'll actually look at um, how the, this particular chemical affects the um, hormone production in a class of um, a ter- certain kinds of, of uh, human cells that are in Petri dishes, <laughs> mm. essentially. Okay. Yeah. I so, guess because... So, go yeah. ahead. Well, I was just, I guess part of the concern is we've got these flame retardants, let's say, and we we know they do a pretty good job with respect to possibly saving lives because of fires. And then we find that they have some other effect on children or, or, you know, whatever other effect they may have. And then we, we replace them with some other chemical compound, flame retardant. We don't really know that much about it. It seems like a really extremely challenging area that you're dealing with, I guess. It is. I'd say the flame retardants, um, I mean, there are places for flame retardants, certainly. But the question is, do we need flame retardants in, you know, every single product that we own? When the, I'd say the question about um, how well flame retardants um truly uh, save lives uh, in the sense of their, their um, the, the whole point of having them in these products is to reduce the potential for starting uh, fires, essentially, or, or uh, uh, extending fires. But there's, there's so much more to this. I mean, these compounds, when they're in a fire, if there is a fire, they produce all kinds of, you know, really horrible toxic compounds, hmm. you know. And so um, I, I think my, you know, I haven't actually personally looked into the relationship between the presence of flame retardants and whether this actually does anything. There was a great series of, of, um, of articles on this, you know, a few years ago. I think it was a Chicago Tribune, perhaps. But the the I, I'm I'm a big fan of the precautionary principle. Where is it, if there's really um, for evidence that we're saving lives with flame retardants, great. But I, you know, I, I'd like to see that. And I think the, the the adverse impacts of having these kinds of chemicals in the mix, not just flame retardants. I'm talking about all these other kinds of species that we were testing on humans, basically, by putting them into these consumer products. Um, I don't really, uh, I'm I'm not a big fan. I I don't see the the, uh, advantage of having flexible floors as really overcoming the disadvantages of of these potential adverse health effects. I guess then you also have the, especially here in the United States, I suspect a lot of these are put into products because of legal liability, and and there's really not that much evidence that they're going to save that many lives. But that's another yeah. story for oh, another that day. That is true. That is true. I think there's a new label. I think in in California for that says something like um, it actually has it on the this. It's not a disclaimer, but it says something about having having a flame retardant chemical or not having a flame retardant chemical. And it actually, you know, you can do that. You can have these products that says does not. And so it allows the consumer to make a decision. I would prefer to have it with the flame retardant chemical so that perhaps they feel safer. But they could also say, I'd rather not have the flame retardant chemical in this product. Um, and that way I feel safer because I'm not being exposed to whatever this chemical is. Hmm. All right. Well, let's let's take our uh, halftime break here. I think what we'll do is 
let's let's go ahead and thank our sponsors, Cliff, and then after that, we'll get into the IAQ Radio trivia question immediately following halftime. We'll be the back. Indoor okay. Air Quality Association, a nonprofit, multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Visit them at iaqa.org. Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions. We use advanced sensor software technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them at wolfsense.com. Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years. Check them out at legends-enviro.com. And, of course, our marquee sponsors, John Don Products, or restoration and abatement contractor shop. Visit them at johndon.com. Clean Facts, the number one information source for cleaning and restoration professionals. Check them out at cleanfactswithanx.com. IAQ.net and Healthy Indoors Magazine, a free online digital magazine for industry professionals and consumers. Subscriptions available at IAQ.net. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IAQ Radio when you acquire about their products services. Win a cool prize by outcompeting fellow IAQ radio listeners and being the first person to correctly answer the IAQ radio trivia question each week. Submitting your answer is easy. Either email it to cslotnick at cs.com, or if you're listening to the show live, you can text in your answer by computer. Congratulations. To John Lapoter, Indoor Air Quality Solutions, Orlando, Florida, for the first correct answer to last week's trivia question. The IQ Radio Trivia question for Friday, July 24th, 2015, has been sponsored by Triska, the Tri-State Restorers and Specialty Cleaners Association who have been serving the needs of and advocating for their members for over 30 years. Remember, TRSCA is your link to industry training, certification, standards, and events. Check out their website. It's trsca.com. Now for today's IQ Radio trivia question. Who is the patron saint of engineers? Back to you, Joe. Thank you, Cliff. All right, we're back with the second half of our interview with Dr. Glenn Morrison. Um, Glenn, we were talking about SVOCs prior to the break, and you're working on a project now, I believe, on the role of clothing in accelerating and impeding dermal absorption of airborne SVOCs. Can you tell our listeners a little bit more about what that is and and what, if anything, you find so far? Sure. Um, it's, it's actually pretty um, intuitive in a sense, although what was surprising is how there was almost no information, there's no, no research on this subject. But if you think of um, SVOCs are, you know, these, these heavier compounds that, that don't volatilize as much, but they also like to stick to things. And so if you think of you know, your clothing can be a really great barrier to chemicals, um, but only to chemicals that are going to stick to the clothing so that they act kind of like a filter. You're walking through a room and they, the chemicals will stick to them. So, so when we talk about the um, clothing impeding dermal absorption, that's what we mean. It's just um, the clothing kind of absorbs it before it gets to your skin. But so, there's another element to this. So if you can imagine that... Um, you're, you have clothing that's been hanging in a closet for the last couple of weeks. When you put on that clothing, what you're wearing is clothing that has absorbed chemicals from the closet area, whatever they are. And it turns out that what we found is that for these SVOC compounds, the capacity for clothing to absorb these chemicals is just huge. So think of it this way. The amount, so for, um, well, uh, there's a, I, I use this example because I, I know it, there's a compound called um, 
dibutyl phthalate. Okay, so dibutyl phthalate is something I've worked with. It's a chemical that's used in various products um, indoors. But it absorbs in a way that um, basically you're absorbing the equivalent volume of something like six to ten household worth volumes of air into your clothes, into a shirt, okay, or a shirt or a pair of pants, you know. So it's a huge amount of this it gets absorbed. And then when you put it on, you're walking around with this much, much, high, much more highly concentrated SVOC source next to your skin. Your skin warms up the clothing. It releases these chemicals next to your skin, and your skin absorbs them. Okay, so that's the idea. What we found, we did human, uh, uh, we call them participant trials rather than subjects because they're basically volunteers. And we actually studied this. We found that when, and this is uh, a study I did in Denmark um, with some folks at the uh, uh, Danish Technical University uh, near Copenhagen. And we actually um, showed that when you wear clothing that have um, been allowed to kind of absorb these chemicals from air, um, you'll get a lot more dose. Your, your, your skin will take in, or I should say the, the chemicals will transfer across your skin into your bloodstream in a way that's much, much greater if you're wearing clothing that's kind of just absorbed these things from air relative to just standing in that room with no clothes on. So you can just absorb it from the air, but the rate is going to be a lot slower, or not a lot, I could say maybe four, to four times slower, let's say, as, as an average number, than wearing the clothing that had absorbed it from the same air. So that kind of gives you an idea of what we're talking about. And I think that if we're talking about what, why does this matter, I think what we're going to find is that our exposure to the chemicals that are present indoors is, and our, our sort of uptake through our skin is going to be greater than we thought because of this pathway. And it's because we essentially allow our clothing to kind of absorb like a sponge all these things after, over a few weeks, and then we wear it. If we just washed our clothing and wore it immediately, we wouldn't really see that. So it's an interesting, um, it's kind of a complex process, but it's uh, really interesting to me. More more to it than I thought when I first looked at that. And, you know, I was, <laughs> I'm thinking about um, something that happened here not long ago. My, I have a home office in my studio here at, at the World Headquarters is um, out in the middle of the country. But anyway, my mother-in-law came up and she had been wearing something that was in a closet that had mothballs in it. And then even after she left, my wife could still smell mothballs on, on my couch for, I don't know, another day or two. And I don't think, I think that's more of a volatile. I don't know. What, what, what would the, um, well, maybe there's a couple yeah, different things. Yeah, it is a volatile. You know, Rich Corsi did several, uh, wrote a couple of good papers on this. Uh, you had Rich on your show a few years ago, I think. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Uh, he's at the University of Texas, and he and a student looked at um, those compounds that are in uh, mothballs and moth crystals and looked at how, how they um, absorb into, I believe it was into clothing. But, you know, I think we all have had that experience. You can, um, the amount that gets absorbed is huge. And so that's a really nice, actually, that's a great example, uh, Joe, the, that, of, of, that we can really detect, you know, you, you, these, this clothing just kind of holds onto it for a very long time. You know, if you're wearing it, you're breathing it in for sure. And it's you know, certainly possible that what you're doing is you're you know, subjecting yourself to those compounds um, and through the, it's basically being absorbed through the skin as well. I don't know how much because I don't know that pathway well for, I guess that's uh, uh, dichlorobenzene and uh, naphthalene are the two uh, compounds that are in moth crystals. Hmm. Cliff, do you have any, anything you want to add at this point? Not right now, All right, I want to finish with one more question on SVOCs, and then uh, hopefully we'll have a little time for some of the other interesting stuff that you've done and maybe some thoughts on the future of the industry here. But anyway, you, you have a current project that was described as um, having to do with SVOCs and their interactions with aerosols, um, and it's a more fundamental and it attempts to understand how aerosols, SVOCs, interactions can increase emission rates of SVOCs from surfaces, but also increase deposition rates on skin clothing. What, what type of aerosols are we talking about here? And, and can you tell listeners a little bit more about that research? Sure. Uh, so it's any, any particle that's in air, anything that comes from, you know, so, so the aerosols we're talking about, at least that have this effect are actually quite small. They're the real fine particles that um, are below about a uh, 0.1 micron. 
Um, but there's you know tons of them in any air, so it doesn't really matter. It's some of them are you know made of you know like salt particles. Some are, are organic species uh, particles that are sort of made of organic uh, compounds that may come from atmospheric chemistry. So um, or combustion, you know, you light a candle, and it creates a lot of these really really fine particles. So anything like that can be. Um, uh, and but but like I say, it doesn't really matter in terms of the type of particle. Um, but what's happening is a little, um, can be a little bit hard to explain because it actually took us a, l- a long time to figure out what was going on there. Okay. It's, um, and I'm not alone. The easiest way I can say is that, that for particles in the size range, um, they like to absorb these SVOCs. There's an affinity for them. And when they get near a surface, um, those particles don't necessarily deposit. They just kind of move, they're, they're moving around the room um, almost like they're a gas, not quite, but almost like that. And they get near a surface, and when they get near a surface that has SVOCs on it, the, the concentration near the surface is high. And so they'll like move into the zone and kind of absorb these compounds near the surface, move away from that zone, and then release them in the room. And so they're like a, they're like a transport mechanism. That, but they do this in a way that's faster than, than, they, than it would happen naturally with just um, the SVOCs sort of just evaporating from the surface. Hmm. Um, and so the, what we're just studying that trying to basically, it's very difficult actually, but what it can mean is that our expectations for how rapidly SVOCs can move from, let's say vinyl flooring or some surface to the environment and then to us is probably faster than we would have anticipated just based on doing some simple calculations. And so, um, just because they're SVOCs doesn't mean they don't, effectively evaporate and, and get to us in, you know, eventually. Yeah. Now, you, you've mentioned vinyl flooring a few times. We had um, Nicole Bilsma on the show. She's a, a bob biologist, and she, she has a, a school in Australia, and, and she was very concerned about this vinyl flooring. And she was pretty adamant that we shouldn't be using it, period. I'm wondering if you're to that point, like in schools and, and in places where especially we have young people, should we try to avoid that until we know better what it's doing? I think that there's enough evidence on the adverse health effects of phthalates to say, yeah, maybe not. Maybe we shouldn't be using this. But if you have a something that replaces the semi-volatile organic compounds that has a really good, re- we have really good reason to believe it is not going to have these adverse health effects then I don't really have so much of a problem with the vinyl itself. The PVC, it's pretty stable. You know, there are some issues with its manufacturer that we're essentially exposing workers to the, um, to the chemicals associated with the manufacturer. But um, I would say that there are ways to design these kinds of flooring using the right kind of alternatives um, that uh, it, it is possible to do that. Uh, I don't think we're going to do it anytime soon. But there are actually... Um, some interesting um, alternatives to phthalates made from vegetable oils that when you look at the, 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 the possible metabolism in the, in the body, what the body would do with that is turn it into something that the body produces anyway. And so it's a sort of what we think of as a naturally occurring product in the body. So I, I'm, I don't think we need to throw them out altogether, but I think we need to think about the things that we put into them, the chemicals that go into them. Hmm. All right, let me, let me move on to, a, I just want to kind of throw out a couple of, questions I thought of when I was, you know, thinking about the interview. I was like, okay, I finally got Glenn Morrison on here. Let's let's get his thoughts on these big topics. Number one, you've been doing indoor air quality, indoor environmental quality research for a long time. You've worked with a lot of really good people. You've you've helped I think maybe it wouldn't be an exaggeration to say a hundred students um that that have gone on to graduate studies in this area and, and can you tell us about some of the practical applications from their research that we can imp- that we're not incorporating yet as well as you would like in indoor environmental consulting and contracting what what kind of big items would you have people would you prefer to see us doing more often that maybe we're not okay i mean there's a lot of specific stuff but you know actually i should say one this is always a difficult one for me because I feel like, um, you know, the, the practice side of uh, uh, indoor environmental consultant, consulting is something that I don't know as much about. I'm not, you know, I, I don't go out and, you know, experience this myself. So 
I would hate to you know have the hubris to tell people what to do. Okay. <laughs> but I can tell you that there are, there are things that I think um, we can improve upon. And for example, one more recent example is is um, methamphetamine. You know, we do this. There's a lot of methamphetamine cleanup work being done um, in uh, buildings that have been uh, contaminated. And if there's one thing I would say that we should do when that work is done, I think there's people who do a very good job of this. I don't. Uh, I wouldn't criticize their work, but I would say that. What should be done are um, taking air samples um, after the fact um, for at least um, six months to a year afterwards, because there's a lot of these um, contaminants can migrate into building materials, and even after you clean up, they can migrate back out. Even um, if you, let's say you've done uh, encapsulation, it is possible for it to continue migrating out from other places other than the, the, the drywall. So that's one I would like, and, and this is a general um, sort of rule of thumb. I think that for Anything we do, we should be checking. You know, we, we shouldn't just build a building and then walk away from it. As we all know, you, you should be checking to see how well it's performing. We should be also be seeing how well um, things are performing after the fact, um, uh, especially after a remediation. So that's, that's one. I, I, there's, you know, beyond that, I would say my, one of my pet peeves is the use of, is adding things when you don't need to add them. You know, simple is better, generally speaking. Taking sources out is good, but adding, you know, fragrance to things is bad. Okay. <laughs> you know, it's just, I, I, that, those kinds of rules of thumb, yeah. All right. And let's let's get another one. Um, you've done a lot, I believe, with ozone technology, and maybe or you've at least looked at ozone, and, and I don't know about hydroxyl technology, but I want to ask anyway. Do you see any use for ozone or hydroxyl technology in indoor environmental quality maintenance or remediation? I'm not a big fan. Um, in, in the sense that ozone, in particular, I've done a lot of research on ozone and its surface chemistry, and there's just a lot of stuff that goes on that's uncontrollable. And so, yes, it's possible for these technologies, these oxidation processes to um, let's say, uh, reduce odor associated with uh, smoke damage, things like that. In, in, in that sense, it works, but the thing is you're, pro- you're also producing a lot of compounds that maybe you can't smell, but um, that may have some long-term adverse effects like irritation, things like that. I just feel like it's too indiscriminate a process um, to be using, and I really think that that's one place where there really needs to be some follow-up studies. I've, I've really never seen any good field studies where um, these technologies have been used and done, done a, a before and after where you really look carefully at the surfaces, the air for several months afterwards, you know, to see what the impacts of these uh, technologies are. So I'm not a big supporter of them, I, but I would say that the one place where it does, does make sense would be for things like um, uh, bioterrorism, where if, if there's a technology like a peroxide technology, for example, where you're talking about Making sure that anthrax is not, you know, uh, uh, is, is is completely uh, disinfected or whatever. There, there may be a place for that, but on the whole, I'm not a big fan. Okay. What and the hydroxyl technology? Have you done much with that? No, um, I've not. the The thing I I find the whole technology very confusing. If you're generating a peroxide that then goes out and does some oxidation on surfaces, um, I can understand that that can uh, do some. It can oxidize some odors and things like that, or disinfect as possible. But there's, from what I understand, uh, some companies claim that you're actually generating hydroxyl radicals and that that goes out and does something. But the thing is, the hydroxyl radical has such a short lifetime, it just doesn't live long enough to leave any device that generates it. Now, it might do some local effects. You might have some localized um, oxidation. Um, for example, in a duct, you might be doing some uh, chemistry you know, right there near the surface of the device which might be possible. But in, and again, it's, it's kind of indiscriminate oxidation, generating who knows what. Uh, I'm not, uh, so uh, I, I, the, the, I have looked at those, but we did not look at the, um, we were looking at ozone generation from those kinds of devices, and we were not uh, looking at the uh, chemistry at the time. So I, don't, I actually don't know what they're doing. When, when you looked at ozone generation from those devices, what did you find? Well, it was mixed. If it was an ozone generator, it produced a lot of ozone. If it's something that said photocatalysis or hydroxyl, at least for the devices that we looked at in ducts, they did generate ozone, um, but it was um, 
modest amounts. Um, but I don't recall uh, what I recall is that they didn't seem to do much of anything uh, from what we could tell. But we did not test their um, antimicrobial properties, so it's, so I can't say whether or not they were working in that sense. But um, they they generated enough um, that I would say it's probably not a good idea to have them in the building. Um, there's maybe one device that produced so little that we can barely measure it. So we said, okay, you know, it's not producing ozone, so that's okay. But I don't know what else it's doing. Were you seeing if they were producing these hydroxyl radicals? That can you tell if they were doing what they? Said they were no, it's really difficult to you can't it's really difficult to measure the hydroxyl radical directly. It is possible. There are devices that do it, but they're very, very expensive. There nice. are indirect ways to do that, which we didn't do because we weren't in that particular project, we were not uh, tasked with testing how these devices worked. We were only looking at how much ozone they might generate because when you produce when you have an ionizing field of any sort, you can produce ozone. So that was the main concern. Okay. See, this is an area where we're getting a lot of, as practitioners, we're getting a, a lot of um, marketing, essentially, saying, you know, that yeah. these, these work and they work on odors and that you can put them in a building with people in there and that they won't be injured. And it's uh, it's a little frightening yeah, to I me. Yeah, I think that's really, really um, unfortunate because, you know, the it, it, there, we should never, ever inject ozone in any way, shape, or form into a building with occupants present. And if these devices do generate some ozone, I think I consider that um, they, they should not, we shouldn't allow that. But of course, we have, our laws don't necessarily uh, have the ability to restrict that entirely. It's just that we know ozone's bad for you. And we know that the byproducts of ozone reactions are not that good for you either. So why do it? <laughs> so anyway. And in addition, one of my, one of our listeners texted that not only that you're also potentially doing damage to contents and materials so oh absolutely i didn't even mention that yeah you're right absolutely (laughs) all right let me get another big big item here what are the trends you see for the future of ieq related research are we still going to be looking at the you know the the microbiome as much as we are now or is there some other up-and-coming topic we should know about you know, I think the microbiome is still going to continue to be a really big one. I think that, that one, in that area, hopefully what we're going to be able to start envisioning is the relationship between the, the occupants and their microbiome in the building and whether or not there are ways to sort of um, promote sort of a good ecology versus right now an uncontrolled ecology. I think we'll see that kind of thing going on. I think that we're going to see a lot more advances in sensors, Um the question will be whether or not they're useful for research, but I think that getting real-time information about what people are doing and, and where they're doing it and what their environment looks like is going to really improve our ability to get to some of those health effects that I mentioned earlier. These, from a sort of an epidemiological perspective, you know, if we get a vast number of people um, sort of enrolled in some sort of in a program like that where we're using these sensors to track them much better, we can really get an idea of what. Um, a better idea of whether or not um, some of these uh, pollutants really are um, bad actors. Um, I'd say that relationship. Oh, a big one coming up is going to be spending, um, is taking the instruments that we use for atmospheric air pollution research, which are great things, far too expensive for us to apply indoors for the most part, but we're seeing that happen now. And we're, we're going we're to learn a huge amount about the chemistry that's taking place associated with um, basically smog coming indoors and um, doing all kinds of crazy things, producing all kinds of chemicals that, and all kinds of oxidized species that could be related to big picture sickness and mortality. So those are, those are, those are just a few. I mean, I could go on and on. Well, if I've got one, do you have to run right this minute or? No, no, I've got time. Go I've ahead. got an extra couple questions and we can go as sure, long sure. as we want. All right. What about, um, I had the question about the same question about products, but I want to kind of refocus that more on materials um, within buildings. I know you, I think you do a good bit of research on building materials. What, what do you see in the future of building materials? Well, I think we're going to see probably a consolidation of this idea of green, you know, recycled materials you know, fundamentally are, are questionable, I think, in buildings because they're un, there's a lot of uncontrolled aspects of what goes into them. And so I think we're going to refine what it means to be green and healthy materials as time goes on. But 
beyond that, I really like the idea of you know, intelligently designed um, uh, materials, panels, coatings, and things like that that act actively um, help um, you know, remove pollutants. Okay, so um, I've uh, worked with Rich Corsi on uh, several projects in which we look at the at building materials that can absorb ozone. And they're very effective at this. And it's really an interesting problem to, or it's an interesting opportunity. Because one of the things that, if you, you can build a building and you can um, put all the best stuff in it, but you can't control how people behave. And so they're going to bring their own products into the building. They're going to smoke or they're going to open windows and let smog in from outdoors. There's all these things that they're going to do that are, you know, difficult to deal with unless we're putting in advanced filtration systems in buildings, which may help, and we may be doing that in the future. But I really like the idea of these very passive um, uh, building systems or coatings that can um, help sort of lower that exposure. And I think you're going to see an overall benefit for, for health if we do that. There are already companies that do this. Some of the, these materials I've tested, and they do work. They do remove ozone. They do remove VOCs and some other species. Um, and they actually have some longevity. They're not just like, okay, they'll work for a year. You know, these things can last for a long time. Now, we need more, a lot more research on that, on the longevity question. But imagine, if you will, that we use these in a targeted way for really sensitive populations that you don't want to change the entire HVAC system in a house, but if you could just, you know, put up a coating that, helped remove ozone and um, certain, uh, certain sets of VOCs, especially irritants. You might help somebody with respiratory problems um, get through uh, a smog season. And this could be a lot more cost-effective than just trying to reduce smog outside by the, the equivalent amount. Hmm. So I'm a big fan of that kind of thing, yeah. Now, are some of these titanium dioxide-type products, or, I mean, I've I'm got... Glad you Okay. Yeah, I'm glad you asked that question because that's the area that I think um, where we have the least, we're least likely to be very successful. The idea of using cat photocatalysis and these catalytic um, materials to remove organics, um, a lot of people have been working on this, but there's a fundamental, uh, I should say, a, a challenge or barrier here in that in order to get this to happen, you need um, a certain amount of energy from the photons that hit the surface. Mm -hmm. And that energy in relationship to the um, amount of energy you need to get the molecule to break apart and the time the molecule spends on the surface, all of these things combined are a very difficult problem to solve. And so I'm, I, I feel like it, 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 maybe somebody will solve it, but I feel like that is um, not the an offer. I don't think it's going to happen anytime soon. And frankly, I think, we're going to continue to see products that only do sort of partial oxidation. And instead of getting rid of, you know, all the VOCs, what you've done is gotten rid of a few of them and produced some, um, uh, some formaldehyde and some acetaldehyde and things like that. It's not really um, effective in really improving air quality. And, and that's been the knock on some of these titanium dioxide type products, hasn't it? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, you can do effective photocatalysis in a device that has the right wavelength and the right energy. You know, you can do that with, with UV photocatalysis. Um, it, but the ones that I've seen for, I've seen a lot of these devices that really, to me, I mean, they just aren't engineered correctly. They're basically just kind of a, a light with a little surface in a, let's say, in a duct. And it's just, I can look at that and know that you're not going to get effective removal mm -hmm, um, uh -huh. of these compounds. Um, you need something that's an advanced photocatalytic system that actually contacts all of the air with surfaces and you have enough light. And there are these devices that, are, that do work. And I think that if you're doing it in duct, um, it is possible to make those work. If you're doing it on surfaces indoors, it's not going to work well, I don't think. Uh, it's a very difficult and that, and I probably didn't make that clear when I started that, is that I'm talking about passive technologies, not active technologies in a duct. I see. And what about on the exterior building? I mean, maybe I'm, I misunderstand, but isn't this somewhat popular over in Japan and, and some other countries where they're using a lot of these titanium dioxide coatings outside of buildings, inside of buildings, or is that being overblown by some of the people I'm talking to? <laughs> it is used. And in fact, um, as on the outside of the buildings, it's, it's very effective at 
or outside of some structures, it's very effective at keeping the structure looking clean because it oxidizes um, soot and organic compounds that, that absorb to the surface. And it does that well because it's got full sunlight. You know, it's got all kinds of wavelengths to work with out there. The intensity of sunlight outside is 100 times greater than anything you have indoors. But um, there, is, there is an open question about whether or not doing this has a overall impro- improves air quality in cities because although the surface area is sufficient, I think if you like coated every surface with something that did something like this, you could actually see changes in the, you do would see changes in like local concentrations of pollutants. But these photocatalysts also aren't perfect. They don't just remove oxidants. They can generate other compounds like uh, nitrogen uh, oxide type compounds um, under certain circumstances. So you kind of have to be careful about how these things are deployed. Hmm. You know, it's interesting. You're kind of, I've got a guest, uh, a listener that you two seem to be in sync. I don't know who it is. It's just guest nine, but I suspect I know once they tell me their name. Uh, But anyway, (laughs) very, very interesting. Um, Great, Great stuff. Excellent interview. So glad we finally got you on. Before we go, uh, the last question we always like to ask, is there anything we missed that you'd like to add or you know, anything that you'd like to add at all? Oh, well, I think we've covered a lot of things. I, I, I'd say um, for your listeners, you know, I, I, as, as president of ISIAC, you know, we, we do try to reach out to practitioners in some ways, but we, we're not always that successful at it. I think we did a good job at Healthy Buildings America. But, you know, if they want to contact me and let me know how they think that um, uh, ISIAC, which is primarily a scientific society, uh, I would say that we have these scientific conferences, um, how we can um, better take that uh, science and communicate it uh, to them in a way that's useful to them. So that's all I wanted to add. All right. Well, we if if can we put your uh, email out there? Or? Sure, sure. Go for. Uh, I'll tell you what we'll do. I'll, Cliff will put it in the blog. How's that sound? Sounds good. All <laughs> right. Cliff does a blog after every show. We're going to run it by you before we uh, put it out. It'll go out the middle of next week with the announcement for our next show. And uh, okay. I just want to say thank you so much for joining us. I hope we can get you back. I've already had some some great comments. Uh, best speaker I've heard on this program. Great show. So thank oh, you. That's, that's very nice. <laughs> it's very nice. And, uh, I really enjoyed the interview and I uh, look forward to meeting again in person. We met very briefly in 2011, and I hope hope we can do it again soon. Oh, I'm sure we will. All okay. Right. Well, thanks a lot, Joe, and thanks, Cliff, and. Hopefully we'll talk soon. All right. This is Radio Joe Hughes saying thanks to this week's guest, Dr. Glenn Morrison. Of course, to my co-host, the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. You'll be writing quite a bit this afternoon, Cliff. Uh, To John, you got to have faith at the controls here. Great job. Most importantly, to our growing group of loyal listeners, keep banging out those downloads. Looking good. We'll be back. Oh, by the way, next week we have um, Greg Pattison. He's uh, he's going to talk about health and safety issues, and I've got quite a few questions specific for him. He he does a lot of health and safety related things with disaster restoration people. We're going to talk to him about that, and of course, any indoor environmental quality consultant that's trying to help direct these folks doing remediation and disaster restoration should know about health and safety issues related to this industry. So we're going to talk a great deal about that next week. Please come back and join us next Friday at noon for the next broadcast of IAQ Radio. This has been another IAQ Radio production. 